to incorporate the sense of oneself as part of a complex web of mutual dependence is to become more humble. At the same time, this humility enhances one's ability to form bonds with others. In short, retreating from the center of things, both in reality and in one's self-conception, is inseparable from forging connections that expand the boundaries of one's self. Nearly a year ago, I had an idea that was somewhere between brilliant and idiotic, and I knew the only way to know where it landed on that spectrum was to try it out, which I did. I sent a Qualtrics survey to a number of Black women in my network asking them, what do you wish your white women colleagues knew? So if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, I'm guessing your responses to this crazy idea of mine are wide-ranging, starting with, what the hell, Carol? (laughs) Pretty offensive. Kind of gutsy. Totally insensitive. A very white woman thing to do. And also, I wouldn't be surprised if you're sitting there wondering, well, what do Black women wish their white women colleagues knew? Because there's the rub. If we're not regularly in conversation with our Black women colleagues, we won't know. So I went into the survey with a ton of confidence. I was not confident I was doing the right thing, but I was confident that asking the question would teach me some things, which meant I was also going in with a fair bit of humility. I was totally ready to get schooled. What I was really hoping to do, and I'm borrowing language from Renee Wells on this, if you haven't listened to her podcast episode with me, that's episode 50. Um, I'll drop a link to it below. It's totally worth listening to. Anyway, I'm borrowing some language from Renee by describing my intent as seeking to create space for some conversation, even though I couldn't predict what those conversations would look like. So I asked the question and I figured I'd hear some useful things, things I could share back with you. And I figured I would hear some useful things about my own missteps and even asking the question and that I could share those with you. And I figured I'd hear a bunch of stuff in between. And all of that is, in fact, what happened. I didn't get enough answers to generalize, although, to be fair, I got reminded more than once that even if I did get enough answers to generalize, I shouldn't. And one woman, instead of responding to the survey, had a long phone conversation with me to better understand what I was trying to do and to help me understand what was useful and what was not so useful about it. So my impulse behind asking the question was really to provide information for you if you're in a leadership position, information you can act on. And since I can't do that based on what I got from the survey, I'm going to do it in a similar but different way by threading together some of what we've heard on the podcast and some of what I've learned from books on my bookshelf. And I'm distilling that into a few key ways to help you think and behave with a focus on inclusion, humility, visibility, and taking action. Not to mention the thing that both Jane and Renee emphasize regularly, which is decentering yourself. Welcome to episode 51, Retreating from the Center of Things. Hey there, I'm Carol Shabrias, and I walked away from a 25-year career as a higher ed exec so that I could help you. I've had great bosses and shitty ones. I've been a good boss, and to be honest, probably a shitty one. I've learned a lot along the way, and now I share everything I've learned to help you be the kind of leader you've always wanted to follow. 
Each week, I share practical advice and research-based strategies to help make your job easier. Whether you're a seasoned faculty member, a new department chair, stepping into a new role on the cabinet, or just exploring your options and next steps, I'm here to help you align your professional aspirations, your personal values, and the leadership of your dreams. I'm so excited you're here. Thanks for listening to the Uplift Podcast. Today, I'm going to share some bits of advice from my bookshelf, all framed through the lens that Jane and Renee have been designing for us. The key concepts I'm using are practicing humility, decentering oneself, leaving space and agency for others, reducing harm, and taking action. These are all ideas that Jane and Renee both talk about. So again, if you haven't yet listened to Renee, you can catch her on episode 50, and you can also catch Jane on episode 26 with Christina Holmgren, and then on episodes 47 and 48, where she talked to me about white women's work. I'm going to add another white woman to the mix because she edited one of the more interesting books on my bookshelf. Her name is Rebecca Mordrak, and the book is called Radical Humility, Essays on Ordinary Acts. Rebecca is an artist and writer whose practice is at the intersections of art, activism, critical design, and creative resistance to consumer culture. She's a professor at the Stamps School of Art and Design at the University of Michigan, and I first came across her work through this book, Radical Humility, Essays on Ordinary Act. But I'm also going to send you to her website. Um, It's fascinating. I'll drop a link to that in the show notes. And I was particularly moved by her video essay piece on Shinola and Detroit. So again, there's a link to that in the show notes. It's worth the bit of time it's going to take you to experience that website. Okay, back to the book. In her opening essay, Rebecca describes the genesis of the book. Um, She took her family on a five-week sabbatical to a farm because she was, and this is a quote, fleeing an increasingly self-absorbed university culture that seemed to be remaking itself to conform to a corporate model. So she takes her family to Nebraska to this small farm where she found herself increasingly encountering humility. This book, Radical Humility, comes out of that experience, and it's a collection of short, super readable essays from an array of folks. Some of them are the folks she encountered in Nebraska, but others are not. Everyone's talking about what it means and what it feels like to be humble. The introduction to the book is written by Sarah Buss, who I assume is Rebecca's colleague. She's a philosophy professor at the University of Michigan, and in her work, she explores the intersection of ethics, moral psychology, and action theory. In the intro to the book, she writes this, To incorporate the sense of oneself as part of a complex web of mutual dependence is to become more humble. At the same time, this humility enhances one's ability to form bonds with others. In short, retreating from the center of things, both in reality and in one's self-conception, is inseparable from forging connections that expand the boundaries of oneself. I want to share another snippet from the book. This is from the essay by Jennifer Cole Wright, and it's called Escaping the Gravitational Pull of the Self. Jennifer writes this, Each of us experiences ourselves as standing, psychologically speaking, at the center of a universe. That is to say, we each experience ourselves as the organizing center of a consciousness that feels woven together into the form of a life, our life. It seems only natural then that in a world filled with needs and desires, it is our own needs and desires that press most strongly in upon us, demanding our attention. 
It is not simply a matter of our needs, desires, beliefs, values, goals, and ideals being the ones with which we happen to be most intimately and continuously familiar, but rather the fact that they emanate from our center. We experience them as ours. And in so doing, they generate a powerful gravitational pull. But living an ethical life requires that we encounter our needs, etc., as they truly are. That is, as only one particular set of needs, etc., within a vast, complex, and interconnected universe of living beings, all with equally real and legitimate needs, etc., of their own. This is where humility comes in. What strikes me in all of this is that sometimes when I'm attending, this is me now, I'm done quoting. Sometimes when I'm attending a diversity training or having conversations with folks about inclusion and belonging, I find myself thinking that all this stuff about equity inclusion is really fundamentally about being a decent person. It's about being fair and just, being a good human being, recognizing that every other person in the world has experiences and feelings that are as important to them as mine are to me. And so part of my job as a human on the planet with all these other people is to remember that and to account for that and to honor and respect that. It's the challenge of being a good person to continually struggle against feeling I'm the center of the universe and remember instead that I'm only the center of my own universe, which is in a constant commingling community with all the other universes of all the other people in the world. That's not enough though, right? What Jane and Renee consistently remind us is that decentering ourselves is not enough. That decentering has to be accompanied by action. So to move from humility to action, I'm turning to three other books on my shelf. The first book is called Inclusion Uncomplicated by Nika White, and it's a book I talked about in my series on the four stages of psychological safety. If you didn't catch those, those are episodes 37, 38, 39, and 41, and I'll drop a link to those in the show notes. The second book is called DEI Deconstructed, Your No-Nonsense Guide to Doing the Work and Doing It Right by Lily Zhang. And the third book is called White Feminism, From the Suffragettes to the Influencers and Everybody They Left Behind by Koa Beck. And I will drop links to all those books in the show notes so you can easily add them to your book shopping list. So let me thread together kind of the key ideas from those books framed through what we learned from Jane and Renee. So first in Inclusion Uncomplicated, Nika White writes this, Understand that your passivity is perpetuating the problem. The moment you realize that you have been passive, you create an opportunity to shift that behavior. Second, in DEI Deconstructed, Lily Zhang writes, there's a reason why when my clients ask me, what can I do? My first answer is not everything. This is not an idea that comes easily to many people. We're often enamored by the idea of the hero advocate, an infinitely courageous individual that fights against the odds to single-handedly compel obstinate leaders to finally open their minds to the importance of DEI, or to the hero organizer, an infinitely charismatic individual that unites the masses behind the banner of change. Lily goes on to name seven different roles you can play as part of a DEI movement. You can be an advocate, an educator, an organizer, or a strategist, a backer, a builder, or a reformer. But Lily's key takeaway here is that as part of a DEI movement, you can play one of those roles and you can align it with your formal organizational role, which gives you a way to act from your movement role that you can link to your positional power in the institution. So the main idea from Lily saying, don't try to do everything, choose one role and play that role. And then the third idea comes from Koa Beck's book, White Feminism. At the end of that book, she describes three pillars of change. The first is to stop acknowledging privilege and instead fight for visibility. And she writes this, 
I've gotten a lot more out of public acknowledgments of privilege when they are followed by critiques and explorations of those exact barriers, when that recognition then facilitates structural changes. So for example, I'm white and I resent that everyone else at this table is too. How can we access more networks of women of color? Or, I'm straight, and I think that's a problem for leadership, given that we are designating coverage for many women's lives. Does anyone know any queer literate women who could take on this project for additional pay? So let's weave all these together and re-ask the question I was exploring in my survey last summer. So how can you and your leadership role take purposeful action? You're going to quit being passive and you're going to choose a single role rather than try to do everything. To promote visibility instead of simply talking about privilege. So that's what I want to unpack in the next few minutes. Now, let me also say, if you're a white woman listening and you're in a leadership role, you can absolutely think about all this in terms of race. And also, whatever your personal identities are, you can think about this in terms of minoritized identities, even multiply minoritized identities across any and all identity domains. You can even think about higher ed's foundations in the characteristics of white supremacy culture. In other words, you can explore your particular institutional situation, your commitment to using your leadership role to reduce harm, and use that to decide how you want to enact this concept of taking purposeful action to promote visibility while practicing humility and reducing harm. So I want to give you a few ideas to get started. I'm going to draw first on two ideas from Koa Beck's book. She suggests we align ourselves against policies rather than against individual people. So if you're looking for a place to take action, choose a policy you work with on a regular basis. Now, that policy could be related to hiring, to promotion, to teaching, to student conduct, any policy at all that you engage with regularly. Set aside 30 minutes and read that policy through the lens of inclusion and decentering. Check its language. Check its underlying assumptions. Check its implications. Explore the purpose and the consequences, both intended and unintended, for bias, for erecting barriers, for anything else. One of the things that I regularly experienced as a campus employee was that we often viewed policies through the lens of protecting the institution. And I don't think that's illegitimate. I think there's a, there is real value to that. Also, institutions are generally not the entities needing the most protection. So instead of thinking about how does this policy protect the institution from harm, think about the policy from how are we protecting people and what harm inadvertently might be caused by this policy for people. So try to set aside the institutional lens long enough just to see who's harmed and at what expense. And then you can act on what you find. And you can do any, you can do small things or you can do big things. Maybe you can propose a revision to the policy, or maybe you can just start raising questions about it. Start a conversation with others about how the policy has historically affected folks. I'm a lot less interested in what you do in particular and more interested in Nika's point, don't be passive, take action. Just act on whatever it is you find in that policy that needs adjustment. Secondly, I really like Koa's suggestion of speaking up in meetings by recognizing who's in the room and asking what can be done to change that. So I especially like this suggestion, which I read just a moment ago. I'm straight, and I think that's a problem for leadership given that we are designating coverage for many women's lives. Does anyone know any queer literate women who could take on this project for additional pay? Now, what I like here is the one-two punch. First, call out visibility, and second, don't expect people to work for free 
and don't expect people to work as a general representative of an entire community. There's a growing body of research and writing about women's emotional labor in higher ed, and that problem we know is compounded exponentially for women with multiply minoritized identities. So don't just invite people into the room, pay them for their work once they get there. And you might find that your institution doesn't compensate folks for committee work or task forces, so get creative about how to pay. Can you reassign part of that person's current workload? Can you give them a gift of paid time off that they can actually use? And even can you revisit that tricky conversation about paying people for committee work? Don't accept the, we don't do that, and really push the boundaries of that conversation. So the third idea I want to offer is a little more conceptual, and I'm drawing from Koa Beck's work here, and her book is really focused on her desire to change the trajectory of white feminism. She wants white feminists to avoid becoming the next generation of white feminists, which means exclusionary towards everybody who's not a cis, straight, white female, by using power to set things in motion for others, for future generations, and to do so by opening avenues and resources and opportunities for others, and to encourage the changes they bring once those avenues are open, not mandate that they simply parrot back the status quo. So I want to take this idea of thinking about future generations, right? Change what you're doing now for the betterment of future generations. And I want to couple that with a question that Lily poses at the end of their book. What do you want the DEI legacy of your organization to be? So, you know, my first suggestion was that you lead a critique of a policy or a practice. My second suggestion was that you increase visibility and you compensate people for their work. If you don't feel ready for those, then here's a step you can take instead. Get clear for yourself on the ultimate change you would like to make by doing this work. Ask yourself that question. What do you want your DEI legacy at your institution to be? And I know if you know me in real life, you're waiting for this. I can't help myself. It's the writing instructor in me. I want you to spend some time not only reflecting on this, but writing about it. Set aside 20 minutes in your day. Do it today if you can. And free write your responses to that prompt. What do you want the DEI legacy of your organization to be? How do you want those who come after you to represent and remember your DEI impact? So Lily has reminded us we can't do everything. Jane and Renee remind us to be humble. Koa reminds us to prepare a better future for the people in our institution and those that are coming after us, those we will never even meet. And Nika reminds us, above all else, not to be passive. So your charge for the week, take action, promote visibility, practice humility, and do this all by decentering yourself and your personal experience which is a big ask. And I want to hear how it's going. So please send me a note, drop me a DM, email me directly at carol at theclariogroup.com. Let me know what you're experimenting with. Let me know how it's going. Let me know what you're struggling with. I love hearing your stories. And I personally answer all of the emails you send in. So keep them coming. They really light up my days. And then as a reminder, I'm dropping links to the four books I've mentioned here. Inclusion Uncomplicated by Nika White, White Feminism by Koa Beck, DEI Deconstructed by Lily Zhang, and Radical Humility, edited by Rebecca Mordrak. And I'm also dropping links to those earlier episodes with Jane Summers and Renee Wells. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you especially for exploring this challenging and crucial work. (laughs) 
Meanwhile, thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode of The Uplift, the podcast dedicated to elevating and amplifying women's leadership in higher education. Take a moment to follow. You can find me over on Apple Podcasts or Overcast or Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also find all previous episodes with transcript, show notes, and links at my website, www.theclariogroup.com. And hey, I see you with your phone open. Come connect with me on social. You can follow the Clario Group on LinkedIn or Facebook. You can also just follow me and you'll see all the Clario Group content. And once you've followed, please drop me a DM to say hi. I'd like to know you're there. All right, that's it. I will see you next week, same time, same place for the next episode of The Uplift. Bye for now. 